Hey, Pip, have you seen this? What? Hey, Amanda, have you heard that? What? Hey, have you been there, Jacinta? You're listening to the live podcast from Shire Pod, and we are keeping you connected to the Sutherland Shire community with this running podcast coming from a cafe near you. And good morning, Sutherland Shire. You are listening to the Been There podcast and I am your host, Pip Ray. And I am your host, Sarah Jo. And we'd like to thank you for tuning into the Podbean app today to listen to the live broadcast brought to you by the Sutherland Shire podcast station. We'd love, you, we would love to know where you're listening from in the Sutherland Shire or around the world just by commenting via the app. I know, it's very, very clever. <laughs> now, the Been There podcast is bringing you the good news, entertainment, events, weather and local sporting events around the Sutherland Shire. But if you are listening to the replay of this podcast, don't forget that to rate it, please. We've been speaking <laughs> about this. If you love what you're hearing, go on to iTunes because that's the only one that matters. <laughs> and rate it. You'll find us at Shire Pod. We know that when you know you, when you cross those bridges over the Georges River and Alfred's Point or drive under the waterfall overpass, you're home. And despite everything that is going on in the world, this is where it's all happening. We acknowledge that the grounds from where we are broadcasting today is that of the Darawal people and in particular a special place that is honoured and sacred to its caretakers of the wildlife, marine life and those residing here. We pay our respects and we'd like to thank Colonel for the warm welcome. The sun was looking amazing today. It's a beautiful morning. Today is episode nine and we are at the most furthest eastern point of the Southern Shire in a suburb known as Kernel. Aptly, we are broadcasting live from a popular cafe called Kernel 1770, Bakery and Cafe. Now, last weekend, um, I got invited to, speak, to go down to Cronulla to speak to the Mayor, Carmelo Pesco, the Attorney General, Mark Speakman, and the President of the New South Wales Surf Life Saving Society, who is Steve. The boat captain, Michael, was also there. And the fabulous Donna, who was coordinating all the rowers because they were there raising money for Gotcha for Life, which runs programs for mental health awareness and response. And when the thing I didn't realise, Sarah, was that uh, when I was speaking to Michael, um, I found out later on after the interview that they had just found out that one of their um, members had committed suicide. Oh, no. and, um, and, of course, that was what we were raising money for, was this mental health program. So my heart goes out to North Cronulla and the surf club this week, uh, especially the members who were affected, because I can only imagine it has been a completely, you know, tough week for them. Um, and so, I, you know, I ended up speaking with Gus Wallen, who runs Gotcha for Life, and I brought Dylan with me. So that's why I just wanted to introduce that because it was such a special day. Uh, Amanda and I had so much fun going down there and the club is just brilliant, um, what they're doing. So we've got Dylan's um, sports report here and it's with the Lifesavers uh, from North Cronulla. Can't wait to hear it. This is Dylan Hamer. She is our junior sports reporter for ShirePod and she often appears every week on our Been There podcast, which is a roaming podcast throughout the Shire and bringing you the local news weather and uh, events that are going on. So we're here today at the 24-hour row, North Cronulla Surf Life Saving Club. Now I'm here today with Emily. Yeah. Hi. Natasha Hargis, Phoebe Cassie, and they're all lifesavers and members of North Cronulla. So we've got Dylan. He wants to ask a couple of questions. Do you want to go with your first question? Yes. Tell me why you love being a surf lifesaver. I love being a surf lifesaver because it's well, it makes me involved in the community. Like it gets me out of my house. Gets me in a big environment and like family. This being out here, just big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tough question. So many reasons, to be honest. Um, yeah, like Natasha said, it's such a like beautiful community to come to. Like it's like my second home. Like I've been here almost, I think, 12 years. So I just love coming down every weekend. Love seeing also um, young kids coming through as well, doing what we did. It's really nice. Like just watching our community grow even more. That's one of the reasons. I love it. 
Yeah, I'm quite new to the surf club, so coming to North Cronulla Surf Club was amazing. It's a brand new community, like a second family to me, even though I've came in much later. So, yeah, that's why I love it. What should I do to stay safe in the beach if the waves are big or there is a rip? Um, so you literally set the beach for maybe good an hour to watch the surf go in, like see where the ribs are, and always stay between the flags. Like that's the safest option. And talk to the lifesavers. Like they know the beach more than anyone else because they've been there throughout the whole day. Yeah, like if you're obviously not everyone is very like as maybe as educated as us obviously um, but yeah biggest safety tip swim between the flags just keeping an eye out listening for like the announcements from lifeguards surf lifesavers if um if they ask you to do something you know like just do it really just because it's usually for your own safety rather than us trying to be like authoritarian you know um, children can always come down and join nippers at the surf clubs and go into different courses like SRC and Bronze Medallion when they get older. So there's heaps of options to further learn things. But yeah, you can learn from just looking at and listening to the lifeguards on the beach. Yeah. Do you do, you do life-saving competitions like flags and out on the water? So I'm a surf boat rower, so in the summer I compete in the massive boats, there's only four or five of us, like so me, four of us in the sweep, which is very tough, but I used to do the beach flags, sprints and board when I was a nipper, so it's pretty good fun. I am, well, when I was younger, never competitive whatsoever, didn't do flags, didn't do sprints, didn't do anything, but now I do um, the inflatable rescue boat racing, and before that I did um, rescue and resuscitation, which is um, basically like a, um, what's the word? Demonstration of how we used to do like the old rescues with the reels and everything. Yeah, as I said, I haven't quite been here for a while, but I do want to get involved in the IRB rescue boats as well. And I'm just building up a lot of skills on my courses and things like that before I get involved. Yeah. Um, now, you've got some pretty high profile, you know, lifesavers that have come out of here. Who are you going to talk about? <laughs> We've got some legends coming out of this surf club. Um, well, you? Our patient, Ron Rennie, he's pretty good. Um, Steve Warren, Camo, so Camo. Stuart Cameron, he's pretty like high up there. There's too many to even name, like, yeah. I just can't even think of it on my head, like, the, the names. <laughs> uh, so what does it mean for them to be, like, you know, obviously they're role models, in, but what has it taught you outside of just this, the physical skills? just like going out of your way to help our community without like expecting anything kind of in return just like good mateship you know like like traditional like mateship like it honestly just brings everyone together and it just makes you happy like even if you're like oh I don't know if I want to go to the club today like you show up and everyone's like happy to see you ask you how your day's been like all there like yeah it's that's what it's yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, I'd say that too. And that's pretty much what did sum it up. It was awesome last weekend. It was such a great atmosphere. And they actually rode for 24 hours straight. So they had like over 100 people come in and they were just doing it. So um, I've got some great interviews that will be dropping this afternoon with all of those people. Um, Are they yeah. going to do it again next year? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a very yeah. good event. It's a great event and it just yeah. brings it just really brings that whole surf community together. Uh, and especially, you know, th- knowing the news afterwards, it was just like, oh, this is why it's really important that we get those programs out there because they're raising the money so that it, those programs are free because I think that m- must be a, sort of a barrier for people as yeah. well. So who have we got well, here? Well, I was going to say, it's a full episode and I have the lovely Angelina sitting next to me. Good morning. Is it still morning? We haven't haven't gone into the afternoon. Before I ask you a few questions, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, I'm a HSE student, but I also go to TAFE one day a week for makeup. So it's given me like a real inside look into, you know, the makeup industry and stuff. And I'm really into sustainability personally, and Mm -hmm. it's kind of opened my eyes and how unsustainable the makeup industry is and how bad 
all that really is. You know, it is amazing. You know, we see a lot of things that are on this side mm. of the sales, but, you know, the pre-production, yeah. things that, you know, what's happening yeah. behind the scenes, people yeah. don't realise how much is happening waste-wise, you know. So what are you doing for your HSC major work? And then we'll talk a little bit more about the brushes. So um, my major work is um, creating the idea of the brushes and everything and experimenting with what that could become. As you know, as I'm a HSC student, I don't have the <laughs> ability to make them properly and they don't obviously work yet because I don't have the materials. Okay. But um, yeah, I've come up with the idea of creating um, silicon cosmetic brushes with like interchangeable heads. Okay. So when you're doing makeup on someone, you always have to use many disposable products mm -hmm. like sponges, mascara mm. wands, because obviously um, there's a huge hygiene factor, especially with COVID. Like it's people are really seeing how important hygiene is today. Um, and, you know, it's hard to mix sustainability and hygiene in the beauty industry. But somehow we've done it in the um, kitchen industry, in the medical industry. We've been able to kind of bridge some gaps. And I just don't think um, the makeup industry is really on anyone's mind. Um, so I've designed the, a couple brushes to, you know, try to bridge that gap a bit. That's excellent because my sister is getting married and for a while there, you know, the, the weddings had to be postponed, but that was one of the things with makeup. Uh, you know, I was asking, do I bring my own brushes? But even that doesn't quite work because if we're using the same makeup, BYO brushes, you know, might not work because I'm still yeah. bringing my brushes. Yes, exactly. So we need, you know, solutions like this, not even just because of COVID, but hygiene standards. We need mm. to start thinking about that, but also thinking about how we can make that sustainable. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, not even thinking about COVID, there there are really dangerous factors. Like, you know, um, some people have become permanently deformed because they've borrowed a friend's mascara wand, right. which yes. sounds so silly. Like, how can that ruin your life? But it has, you know, people can die from things like that. Um, so it's so important with things like mascara wands, and um, lip brushes and things, things that, you know... Foundation yeah, brushes, yeah, everything. Yeah. Any, anything that touches our face. And our face, skin, is our biggest organ. Mm, so exactly. it absorbs, you know, so much. <laughs> speaking of brushes, I'm not speaking into the brush very close. What, what high school are you at and what is this major work for? What subject? So um, I'm at De La Salle Cronulla and this major work is for my class Design and Technology. Excellent. Um, and the whole focus of Design and Technology is finding a need in the world and trying to solve it. And so um, we have so many people in my class that have come up with such incredible ideas and needs that, you know, people aren't thinking about. And, you know, um, the makeup industry is exactly one of those industries where you don't really have inventors in the makeup industry. You know, it's, it's just makeup artists and we just kind of do with do what we can and it's interesting going back and looking at some of the original cosmetic brushes because they haven't changed <laughs> they haven't changed in like 50 years and someone just really has to come in and you know come up with a couple new ideas to kind of shift things around yeah yeah now without giving too much away because we don't want someone to steal <laughs> your idea yes do we? Copyright, no. trademark, whatever, no. you know? Secret squirrels. Secret squirrels. Yes. <laughs> we have everything on this. That's right. With your design process, is there a way that you could, you know, if somebody did have money or there was a grant you could give, you know, is there a way to produce what you've designed? Yes, there is. Um, so my, I've talked to um, some silicon experts mm -hmm. and they've talked about how I need, for this product to work, it needs medical grade silicon. Okay. And um, I cannot get my hands on medical grade silicon as I don't work in the silicon industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't have, you know, five grand to spend on it, you know, like <laughs> in a factory to get these brushes made. <laughs> Especially your first, you know. Yeah. And that's 
lot of these starting out businesses, that's mm. what it is, yeah. isn't it? It's that first start. You have a great idea, but it costs a lot of money mm. to produce those. Well, first of all, just the demos. Yes, exactly. And the I, product samples yeah. to show this is my, you know, idea. Yeah, and I've I've made um, a lot of samples with um, normal silicon. Mm-hmm. So obviously, because it's not medical grade silicon, it doesn't work. But you can test out the shape and okay. the idea of it. Amazing. Yeah. So um, I have three D printed um, a bunch of molds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kids these days. Incredible. <laughs> I am not tech savvy in the slightest. So it was a massive learning curve. <laughs> How to teach me? Yeah. yeah, it was very hard, but then like you get your you get around and you kind of figure everything out. So I've three D printed um, a bunch of molds, and I was injecting silicon into these and finding new and different like ways to do it. And also a big part of my project is the interchangeable heads. Mm-hmm. And so with these silicon heads, like you know, I can't just use it on one person and go to the next person. That's That's not very hygienic. You still have to clean it. Mm -hmm. But a big thing is I didn't, I don't like the use of um, alcohol Mm -hmm. um, because that doesn't interact well with your products. And also using alcohol on your face, Mm -hmm. it should only be prescribed by a doctor. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be using products with alcohol. So why are we going, oh, you know what? We'll just spray some alcohol in this and it'll be fine. Um, I would much prefer, you know, taking it home and cleaning it properly with warm water and soap in more hygienic and safe for your skin manner. Yeah. Um, so the whole interchangeable heads I found was really important so someone could have one brush handle but have five interchangeable heads. And I think that's a lot, a much more sustainable way of doing it than having five um, lip and brushes that you're going to yeah. chuck out. Yes. Um, so that was a big learning curve on how to have these interchangeable heads. Should I have a screw-on method? Um, push and pull thing it was it was a lot of brainstorming but we got there eventually this is amazing so I I have two questions before Mm. I let Pip come in (laughs) what inspired you so you know you're sitting there I've got my major project to do what you know where did the idea come from Yes. So I'll let you enter that one um, first. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no. Well, I, you know, I was at TAFE and I was doing my friend's makeup and my teacher was informing me of all the hygienic steps I had to take. And I just looked at this bowl of rubbish that I had to mm. have. And I was just like, this is crazy. This is insane. Um, this shouldn't, why should why should I be using this? This is crazy. And my teacher's very into sustainability as well. And she's kind of like, look, there's right now, there you isn't give a, a shout way out around if you like. it. Yeah, Miss K. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she's like, there's no way around this. You know, this is, you just have to do this. Mm. And she, she personally experiments with different types of brushes for different hygiene benefits, but there wasn't, there wasn't a solution on the market. And um, I actually, my project was originally going to be more of um, a plastic awareness piece Mm -hmm. and I was talking to um, a marker for the HSE and he's like you seem so passionate about this project so I wanted to create it into a business after school so I was just asking yes yeah and he's like you seem so passionate why are you not doing this and I'm like well I have no idea how to create this how on earth Am I, like a 17-year-old girl, mm. going to create makeup brushes? Like, that's a bit ridiculous. <laughs> I've got have you heard of Poppy Lipstick? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was um, 19. Yeah, I know. And people are doing crazy things yeah. at young ages. But I'm just like, I'm just, I'm not like one of those people. But he was like, you know, you seem so passionate about it. Why, why not? That's right. So. There's a niche there. Grab it. Yeah. Grab it. And, you know, at So Shy, we have been asked by a few beauty salons how can I reduce my waste mm. but still be hygienic? Because mm. they were doing some things, and this is in before COVID came along, they were doing some things, but then they were forced to go back to certain, you know, single use yes. just because it was deemed more hygienic. Mm. And it not necessarily is, but that's the idea. Mm. So I love these ideas because, you know, hygiene must come first. We know yeah. that. But it's thinking about how can we reduce our waste and be a little bit more sustainable with the idea of still being single use but reusable single use. And I guess that's probably another question I wanted to ask is, um, obviously you've done, you know, you did it through research. Why silicon? Yeah, well, um, my my teacher, I think I was talking about it with a friend or a teacher because I take um, a hospitality cooking class at yep. school. So I get my hospitality cert too once I finish. Yeah. And a large part of that is also hygiene and looking at sustainability. <laughs> 
And all these products, we're making all these kitchen products from silicon because it is a hygienic yeah. uh, substance. Safe. Yeah, well, it's safe. Safer than yeah. plastics, yes. Yes, and it's also, um, you know, it's a lot more sustainable than plastic. It's not obviously the most sustainable product, but it's a lot better, like long-term use and the whole life cycle of silicon mm-hmm. is a lot better than plastic. You know, it's a lot more durable and it's not single-use like pr- plastic is, which is really, really important. Um, but yeah, I, I just kind of found silicon things in the in the kitchen when I was working away and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking to my teacher about it um, she was um, fiddling around with a couple um, silicon single-use products. Yes. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of how the idea arose and I was chatting with my um, Tay friend about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, a big call out. If anybody has any money, <laughs> any local business who would like to donate to Angelina's idea, this would be a great time to get in contact with us <laughs> at ShirePod <laughs> and we'll put you through because we need... You know, these yeah. types of, well, should I say inventions? Reinventions is probably the correct Innovations. word. Innovations. Innovations. Yeah. yeah. Initiatives. Yeah. Initiatives. That's yeah. right. I think they're all very valid and I think it's just going towards a more sustainable planet. Mm. Yeah. So we really thank you for your time. Right. And did we get the exclusive interview though before you become famous? That's oh, I, I think yeah. you did, Sarah. Yeah. I think you've managed <laughs> to get the scoop. And, we have um, her first. You know, Channel Nine. You can come and see us about this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and when is it due? Um, well, I've handed it in, but my final due date is in, um, I think, around five weeks or something. I can't what believe mark, it's What that mark are you going to give us, Sarah? Oh, well. 100%. 110, 105. Yeah. I'm, hey, I'm High level. Stage uh, yeah. level six. Yes. I, I love that there's been so much thought going into it. I think that's yeah. what... Um, that's what's really impressive yeah. is that someone with that fresh mind, not corrupted by, you know, what we're <laughs> always used to mm. um, and the way that we're conditioned to think of plastics and stuff like that has been able to really examine, um, you know, a new product, like yeah. a new and exciting product, for, especially for women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Okay, the boys can do it as well, but that's good. And I think a really big shout out to all the teachers out there that are fostering mm. and supporting yeah. our local students. Yeah. And they're big ideas. And that is where innovation comes from in that education space. Like you can see now that we've got a a generation of educators that are actually going, I grew up thinking this, but I actually think there's something better. That's right. And now they're teaching those little kids, you know, that there is actually something even better than that. So it's this real sort of potential rather than learning what we've always known. That's right. That's right. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Angelina. And the connection that we have with you is that your mum is a podcaster and you are a podcaster (laughs) on Shire Pod. So we really appreciate you coming on to the live show. It's just, um, yeah, it's such a privilege. (laughs) And we'll be following. We'll be following. We'll be watching the success. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully I'll be buying, what, Angelina's... Angelina's makeup brushes. Yeah, something. (laughs) We'll think of of something more catchy. Yes. (laughs) All right, well, it is a massive show and we've just got a couple more interviews to play because um, our guests have all all had to get on with their day. That's right. But you have had such a massive week and you've been introducing me to all these amazing people. So I really want to thank you um, because I have just been introduced to this sustainable planet living uh, over the last eight weeks and learnt so much that my brain actually hurts now (laughs) when I'm speaking to people. And I'm going, oh, my God, we could do this and we could do that and we could do this. So um, there you go. We're in the, we're there, we're, in the This town. is live. This is what it looks like. So we want to uh, talk about Ruth because Jess was here earlier talking about the wildlife uh, emergency response. And we've got mm-hmm. an, I did an interview with her yesterday. And we're just going to play that now so that you can find out. But she's talking about um, what they actually did and how it came together as a community. Um, in February, once the, the after the bushfires, yeah. The Wildlife Emergency Response Group is a volunteer-run community response group. So we're not really an organisation. We're not a charity group. We're we're called we're we're what's known as a community response group, and it's pretty much um, what happened was the group was formed as a result of the need of um that came out of the firestorms in december and january um so our group um gets together and we respond to 
carers looking after injured and uh, rescued wildlife in order to, to help them look after them and return them to, to their natural environment when the time is ready. We got about 300 members within two weeks of starting this group. Um, we, uh, Myself and Lisa co-founded the group um, and we've been joined by some amazing people who are really proactive and Jess is one of them and we've got a whole bunch of um, people who uh, are leaders in their area. Um, so our group is basically, it's about uh, we didn't want any money and we didn't want any politics involved in the group. What this is is an on-the-ground response to help wildlife carers look after wildlife and repatriate the wildlife. Um, and this was initially a direct response from the, um, the firestorms on the back of a very devastating drought. Um, so there's a, um, uh, our group is, is in... We're helping the New South Wales Wildlife Council licensed groups. So there's 22 licensed caring groups as part of the Wildlife Council. And they're, they're all around New South Wales. Um, and of those 22 licensed caring groups, 17 were directly affected by the firestorms. So um, what we found was happening was the caring groups they weren't receiving what they needed. So there was some very well-intentioned people. Um, I don't know if you remember the koala mitts um, that people were making all around the world. Um, so that was fantastic for those looking after koalas, but people looking after micro bats or, um, you know, wallabies, joeys, wombats, etc. cetera, uh, they weren't getting what they needed in order to look after the wildlife. Um, in addition to that, because 17 of those groups were in the um, fire zones, a lot of the carers had actually, they were facing their own personal traumas, I guess, for want of a better word. They, they lost houses, they lost sheds, they lost access to water, um, amenities. Um, they couldn't go down to the local shops and buy bandages even for the, the wildlife because... If they had the money, the shops weren't there. Or um, so so money was not what was needed. Um, and what was needed was, for example, bandages, liners made out of 100% cotton, um, towels, sheets, etc. Um, because a lot of the the carers, <laughs> whilst they were living in sheds or caravans or tents in their own home without water, they still had wildlife coming to them because their, their area was a refuge and they were still looking after that wildlife so they weren't sleeping and so forth. And um, look, uh, Lisa called me up one morning and Lisa is part of the New South Wales um, Wildlife Council and she said, come and have a coffee, <laughs> which I went to after my holiday to Gindervine was cut short um, because of the... The fires, the immensity of the fires, I've never seen anything like it. Um, and I thought I was going for a coffee with a friend and she said to me, Ruth, people aren't getting what they need. We we need to help. We need to do something. So I said, give me a, give me a notebook and let's go. And out of that, um, we just went on the most phenomenal journey of community response. And... I believe it's because a lot of people in the Southern Shire have a close affinity to um, the South Coast and North Coast over the, the Western Ranges, etc. They have a lot of family and friends. There was a lot of holidays being cut short. But more than that, we in the Southern Shire have a real empathy and understanding of what it's like to face firestorms and bushfires and lose personal items and and the, the, the devastation that goes along with that. We were lucky, we were spared this time, um, but we were able to activate. And, and look, it's not, our group is not just about making items for carers to, to look after um, wildlife that has been injured. It's, it's twofold. It's, it was about also providing a positive response in the face of crisis of trauma. So, we wanted to challenge that negative or that dominant narrative where it was pr feeling pretty hopeless at that time. You know, uh, there wasn't, and, and a lot of people were feeling very helpless and this was able to 
what we did was create a safe space for people to get together and learn new skills and teach each other and, and um, share knowledge and donate goods and repurpose items and make things. And, and out of it, we've, we've sent um, items to carers west of the Blue Mountains, um, Aladulla, Queenbian, two groups in Victoria, um, in the Upper Hunter, Campbelltown, even looking after koalas out there in the western plains of Sydney, uh, New South Wales. So um, our items, the, the group is deliberately called Wildlife Emergency Response Sutherland Shire and Beyond because whilst we're, we're located in the Sutherland Shire, um, our purpose is to reach beyond and to activate and help look after the wildlife and also, you know, our environment as a result. Now, Ruth is just so passionate and she's also working whilst coordinating this particular group, which, you know, shows some real leadership about how volunteers step up in the community and how they're just not responding to this crisis that we've been subjected to for the last eight months, but literally pulling together a collector, a collective of carers who are skilled and are also willing to share those skills and teach others um, about you know how to be prepared for the next time because we know that this stuff's going to keep on going on um, and when we sort of had that conversation it was very much like she felt like for me when she was describing it, it felt like we were being called to a war mm-hmm. you know calling those arms into you know like what they did in the in the well, not in the forties and the second world War where literally you know you lost you left your job and you went and did what the the city needed or the or the town needed in order to prepare for that um, so. It just felt like that and when she was describing it and I went, God, I don't even know how you you cope to build that level of resilience. But they're doing it and eight months later, they're still creating and they're still, you know, banding together and she's able to just assign the work. Um, They've got a real great workflow happening as well. That's right. And and it's amazing just how the community can get evolved. Yeah. And it's still turning over. And I saw last night on their social pages that – Apparently one of the volunteers or someone's getting a special award coming up soon, a New <gasps> South Wales award. But I did not have the exclusive on that, but I didn't want to say I know, yeah. so stay tuned. <laughs> when, when it's publicly, we're allowed to say. And speaking of volunteers, the New South Wales Volunteer Awards is actually a virtual awards day on Tuesday coming up. Oh, fantastic. Yes, well, we'll we've, we know enough of those. We'll be sending I'm out sure. a massive shout-out right. to all of the people because I feel like we've spoken to hundreds of volunteers in the last eight weeks. And that's weeks. why I love the Shire. Southern yeah. Shire, Colonel, people don't understand how many volunteers and groups and amazing organisations that we have in Sutherland Shire. So please, yeah. there, there is one for everybody. Yeah. There is an interest for everybody. You've just got to find your little group. That's right. And then you'll find like minds. That's right. Exactly. And speaking of like minds, we've got lots of them online I at know. the moment. Yeah. So I just want to send another shout out to our Daydream Creative team. She's out there doing her thing. We've got Tanya Jones. We've got Mans. We've still got Maz on the line. God love him. He didn't want to wake up this morning and come in here uh, for this particular event, but. You know, cheering me all week. Going, yeah, 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 you can do those 2 a.m. finishes. <laughs> yeah. We've got Mantash. We've got Samantha Cornfield, uh, Robbie, the son. Now, this was an interesting one. Her name is, or his name is, Adverb Adjective. Oh. I love how they get a bit of code on Podbean. It's really quite Look interesting. Out. And McLord Maxwell. <laughs> I need up so, my game with my so, name. I know. I feel like I need to go on and be fancy now. <laughs> but we've got Kim back here because we're going to talk to Kim about a little bit more about the Kernel. Um, yep. And she's just told me a great and interesting story about how she built this place. Do you yes. want to just recap for us and tell us why? Well, I was coming out here exercising for my knees post-operative and... Uh, there was a vacant block here, so I thought, well, that's a good idea, you know. <laughs> Why don't I build a block of units and some shops underneath it? That sounds really good. <laughs> that's a big job. So I came out of retirement and did that, and, uh, and then I, I thought, well, we really do need a, a good cafe bakery here. So that's how Colonel 1770 evolved. But um, unbeknownst to me, this block sat vacant for 35 years wow. um, after Robert Emsley had finished an incomplete building and ran the business for five years as a cafe bakery and they used to have dancers here. Um, I had come from the end of Port Hacking Road next to Ollie's Wharf and Robert Emsley used to own that property as well. So I bought this vacant block not knowing that he ran a cafe bakery here and opened a cafe bakery. 
Colonel 1770. So here we are. <laughs> that amazing, just incredible story. Just so connected, so connected. No degrees. Um, and she's just, yeah, she's shown me a, 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 an image of it, and it's in the book Colonel Birthplace of Modern Australia: A Pictorial History by Daphne F. Salt. Yep. So you can buy that out here at Colonel Seventeen. She's got a few books. She's got a few different yes. of the historian books yeah. and indigenous on books here. On that one at the moment, but yeah, that, that's a really, really lovely book on Colonel. It's got so much information in it. Yeah, and it's just really interesting to see how far back these families go. I mean, I'm third generation. There's a lot of people here that have been here for like you know longer than that. And like you were saying before, you've really got to be here half a lifetime to be considered a local. So <laughs> you're not there yet, Sarah. No, That's no. what I'm thinking. No. Got but, a long way to go. But you and yeah. your husband, Brett, are you know completely active in the community and um, you, you've been recognised for that award. But tell us, you know, what is it that... Um, is, is out there that keeps you here. Well, that's what I say. I love Kim, that Kim's still here because we are just talking a little bit earlier about, you know, my favourite things, what, what draw me to Cornell. And I am a marine scientist, so the ocean and the underwater wonderland is what brought me to Cornell. And Kim, you were talking about how the beautiful spots for all different types of water activities. Yeah, well, Cornell's considered the, the top dive spot um, in Sydney and snorkel sure spot in is. Sydney <laughs> with our sea dragons and there is a, an amazing sponge garden which I dived on about 26 years ago when oh. I was doing my dive course. Oh, wow. Um, and that was just like going into a meadow of sponges. Yeah, it's just yeah. incredible and in, in such a shallow depth of water as well. I yeah. can only imagine what it was like a couple of decades ago because what we see now is amazing but I can only imagine what it was like you know a few decades ago so what Kim was just talking about there is the weedy sea dragons and we also got some pygmy pipe horses there's amazing stuff under there and I just want to mention you know we talked a lot about the whales the big animals of Cape Salander but we do here and have Cornell two special sites or two special reserves we've got the Tower Point Nature Reserve which is a wetland preserved under Ramsar. We also have the Tower Point Aquatic Reserve, which is the largest New South Wales aquatic reserve, and it's amazing. So there's different... What that reserve means, there's different parts that we can't access. Some mm. you can. Some, for example, you can only access by boat. Some you can't walk on the land at all. Other parts we've got viewing platforms. And I think at the start of today I said Kamei Bay, but there's a few bays. So obviously we're part of Botany Bay, but, you know, in Cornell, we've got a few bays. We've got Cribray Bay, we've got Weenie Bay, we've got Woolaware Bay. So there's all these different water access places we can go. And I think this is a really good time to introduce Andrew Trevor Jones. Yes. Now, he's from the Australian Museum. And why we've got him featured today is because follow him on Instagram and Facebook because check out his images. So he actually takes photos of the weedy sea dragons, pygmy pipe horses, knows them by name, yes. has given them names, knows whether they're female or male and updates us whether they've got eggs or not. He's even got pictures of the little baby weedies yeah. tail popping out. It's just, a, I, could, I could spend a whole hour on this, but how about we listen from Andrew, the man himself. Thank you, Pip. Uh, yeah, like like you said, I, I, I pretty much um, at Cornell every weekend, unless the uh, the weather prevents it, and then I'll go somewhere else. But uh, Cornell is is my uh, favourite diving site. Um, it's one of um, four four lo main locations within the Shire that people can dive. Um, there's Cornell, there's Cronulla, uh, there's Dolans Bay, uh, and there's also Lily Billy. I mean, and, uh, and I'm sure people could dive elsewhere, but that's they're the typical places that people dive. Uh, there are some, some people will swear by some dive sites. For me, it's Cornell. It's got everything that I want to see, um, and I just love being there and I love seeing the, uh, the sort of the things you can find there. So I, I haven't actually seen any whales while I've been diving at Cornell. Um, and I should mention um, Cornell is basically diving within the, the national park, the Kamei Botany Bay National Park, and there are three main sites within um that, that people dive. Uh, they're called the Leap, the Steps, and the Monument. So you may have heard of the Steps. It's basically it, it, it's the car parks at the top of the cliff, and there are steps that wind down. Well, they don't really wind down. They sort of they go straight for a while, and then they uh, you go through a cutting, and then it sort of like parallels to the coast. 
Um, and so there's a lot of steps, uh, which you notice more at the end of the dive when you've got to walk back up them. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's, that's, that's the only reason it's called. It's, it's sometimes called inscription point. Um, although if you look at the different maps, inscription point is there's multiple places for it. And then you've got the leap, uh, which is to the south of the steps, and it's called the leap basically because the main entry point uh, is a shelf that's about anywhere between a metre and two metres above the, the water level, depending on the, the swell and the, and the tide. And so you, most people literally leap into the water. Uh, and then the monument is called the monument because that's where that, you know, the obelisk um, to the Cook Landing and, and there's various other um, plaques and things in, around that area um, and that's that's called the monument. Uh, so most people that are going to dive, uh, Cornell will dive at either the, the leap, the steps or the monument. Okay, so in, in all three sites you'll generally see the same sorts of things, uh, just that some things may be more common on the site. Um, but if I start sort of from, from the big things down, um, to date I've not actually seen any whales while I've been diving, uh, but certainly during the migration periods uh, you hear them. You hear them a lot. Um, and it's actually really nice to sort of stop breathing for a, for a moment and just listen to the, uh, the, to the whale song while you're diving. It's, it's a beautiful sound to hear. Maybe one day I'll get lucky and I'll, I'll see one. Next size down, dolphins. Um, just after you surface and you get out and you turn around and dolphins just one past just where you were. And you think, oh, I'm only still there. Maybe they would have come up and, and seen me. But uh, so I um, Sharks. You get a lot of the, the smaller sharks, uh, particularly during breeding season. So at the moment, there's a lot of Port Jackson sharks around. Not dangerous at all. Uh, there's also their closely related crested horn shark. And they're also around at the moment. They like to eat the, sh the eggs of Port Jackson sharks, so wobby gongs. I had, I had one have a go at me, towards me, and I got out of the way. Grey nurse sharks. While not common, um, at times we, we have seen some grey nurse sharks, a couple, and I've even got a video of her. We were basically playing chicken. She was swimming straight towards me. I held my ground, and then at the last minute, we both turned just slightly, and she just brushed past me, and she hit me with one of her fins as she went past. That was, that was a fantastic encounter. We also get some big, big rays, big stingrays. Um, stingrays, their, their wingspan can be almost two metres. And then there's all sorts of uh, smaller rays that we see, which, again, not dangerous, but uh, you know, always interesting to see. And then in the fish, we there are a lot of... Um, you actually see a lot of fishermen along the shore at Cornell, but I never see anyone catch anything. But when we're underwater, we can see some, some quite large fish, like big schools of kingfish. The kingfish are up to a metre long. We'll see large schools of Australian salmon. I mean, I'm talking like probably hundreds of thousands of fish. Uh, so many fish that they stir at the bottom as they swim by. And interestingly enough, when the grey nerve sharks were around, there were also large schools of, of the Australian salmon around. So I'm guessing that they were probably either feeding on the on the salmon or it'd be something for the for the baby sharks to eat. Not sure about that. And then and then there's lots of and then there's lots of really interesting fish. So we had seahorses. There's two regular species of seahorse. One's called a potbelly seahorse, uh, and that's actually the largest species of seahorse in the world. And they're found basically from the far north as Port Stephens all the way down to Tasmania, uh, and also in, uh, they don't get as large in, in Sydney at Cornell as they do in, in New Zealand. That's where they get the largest, but they're, they're always really cool to see. And, and when we stop having storms, uh, they will actually... Uh, set up a little home base and you'll get um, a family, a female with a, with a few males um, and that's always good to, to see. But the storms, well, it's not so much damage to the habitat, it's just that um, seahorses aren't strong swimmers. So basically if they can't, if they don't hang on tightly enough to, to, to whatever they're hanging on to and they usually hang on to things like sponges and sea tulips, if they don't hang on tight enough then they're going to get washed away in the storm. So they're, they're probably get hurt or damaged, they just get moved somewhere else. So there was a, a seahorse, um, a female seahorse that I'd been watching for a couple of years. Um, she was down near the Leap, um, which is the southern part of Cornell. Uh, a big storm came through and she got washed all the way to the monument. I found her about um, two or three weeks later. She made her way slowly back to the steps and then she was living at the steps for about a year. And then another big storm came and washed her back down to the monument again. Uh, and then I, I didn't see her. I saw her one time after the storm and then didn't see her again. So with the pot seahorses, they've got fairly distinctive markings. They have spots um, either on their face or on their body or both, um, particularly around their eyes. 
um, and it's basically just pattern matching, just having you know looking at the photos you've taken and going, well, this is the same, the same one. Um, particularly where, if they stay in the same spot, then you know you know it's the same seahorse. Um, but in this case, she was she was actually quite distinct because when potbelly seahorses are small, uh, are young, they tend to have these spines on their on their head. Um, and even though she was at least four years old, she still had the spines. Um, so she was quite easy to recognise. So you know, basically saw her with spines, and then the, pot, the spots on her body matched. Um, you know, from previous photos, so I was you know, able to, to be certain it was the same one. Um, and, and interestingly enough, about six months later, another one showed up, same sort of coloration, same spines, what pattern was completely different, so I knew it was a different individual. And, you know, I'm, I'm an underwater photographer as well, so I'm basically documenting as much as I can. You know, uh, a bit, I, I, and another species I should have mentioned are the weedy sea dragon. So weedy sea dragon. Uh, which uh, the best place to see weedy sea dragons in Sydney is at Kurnell. Um, there's a there's a healthy population, um, but there's you know there's just some observations. There's some interesting information that we can we can find out about them. Um, so if you look if you pull up any book, um, they'll describe they'll say that the uh, weedy sea dragons have um, two broods a year. Um, and I should mention that. Uh, Weedy sea dragons, much like uh, a lot of the other significant seahorses and pipefish, it's the male that, that carries the eggs. So he has a, uh, an area on his tail where he, he carries the eggs. Uh, most books will say um, they have two broods a year. Uh, I've just from taking photos of and identifying individuals, I know that I've, I've seen a number of males that have had four broods in a year. I'm just, I'm holding my hands out, but obviously you can't see that. Uh, we're probably talking. Um, around 30 centimetres, perhaps a little bit longer, perhaps a bit smaller. Um, they, they, everything looks bigger underwater, so it's, it's, always, it's always really difficult to, uh, to, to, to uh, um, remember how big they are. Because, yeah, they, they always look way bigger than they... Um, like I, I, when I worked at, uh, in another area within the museum, someone brought in a, a, like one that had washed up um, on the beach, and it was... Um, it was way smaller than I expected it to be. Um, I've just, just looked up in my book here. They grow to 45 centimetres. I don't think I've ever seen any that long, um, but they do grow to 45 centimetres. But yeah, most of the ones I've seen have been around the 30 centimetre or a little bit longer. There was something like a tornado. But basically, wind doesn't do much damage underwater. Um, so um, I, I, will, you know, I can go diving on a really, really windy day and there's a lot of wind shock on the surface. Once you get under, it's, it's flat as, it's calm. So the, the, the impact of the wind directly over the water um, is very little. Now, obviously, swell, uh, I, I mean, swell is driven by wind, but it's driven by wind somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, the tornado, in, in fact, I know a couple of guys that were diving on the day of a tornado, um, and they said they didn't, even, they didn't even notice it. It was just they got out of the water and it was just carnage everywhere. Um, but but the, now the, I do remember diving not long after, and it was amazing how much debris there was in the water. So this was land-based debris that had got blown into the water. So there was roofing material. There was I hope it wasn't asbestos. Who knows what it was? It's sort of the um, um, insulation material. There's all sorts of weird things that were out in the water. Um, so it's more things that got dumped rather than anything that got ripped up. Um, as opposed to when we had the big storms, the big East Coast lows, and the, there was a massive one in 2016, um, there was there was massive, there was huge damage both above and below the water, like big um, big boulders that were out of the water, like above high tide mark, the size of a caravan that got moved 50 meters, um, the the steps that go down to um, the leap. Um, they were all mangled out of shape. There was just so the, the amount of force that you get in the in the water when there's a big storm that does do damage. Um, there was, you know, there were. I, I actually had to. I dived the week after that, um, and even though I mean the visibility wasn't very good, um, but it was very hard for me to navigate because there's so much that had changed. But then I'd come across a rock that hadn't hadn't been affected at all. So there'd be one rock. 
that we you know still had sponges intact and everything was fine and then the next rock was buried and then the next rock was sort of the sand that had been at the base was now sort of a hole um so you, you get you do get sort of weird weird sort of um areas that get affected and then other areas that don't get affected with, with these storms thank you andrew so if you are looking to see what we have underwater here in Kernel, our three main amazing dive sites are the Steps, the Leap and the Monument, or it's called Southern Point, or we call it Whale Point now because of the sculptures. <laughs> and, you know, we have a beautiful area. Why we have those reserve places is because we do have migratory birds and resident water birds that are very important and they need places to be protected. So this is probably a really good time to make a note of another guest that we had today. Another guest, I know. another amazing can, guest. Can, I'm just wondering, is there anyone that you don't know? <sighs> we'll <I'm> see. <laughs> we, we had to see. What is it, six degrees? I don't believe in that seven degrees. I think it's like one or two. It's not even that now. It's That's point one three. Point one three. <laughs> I, I scaled it down from point eight <laughs> last week to point one three. Um, so I would love to give a shout out to Dr. Vanessa Perotta when we're talking about the Cape Salander Wild whale migration study so I just want to make a point of note so we do we talked about orca earlier on in today's episode which Mm. is the volunteer group which have been involved with you know the whale census of whale counting but this particular study that Wayne was involved uh, involved with and actually was on early morning sunrise news celebrating him this week the study was published with Wayne and the National Parks, so New South Wales National Parks, Macquarie University and EPA. So you, we can give you the abstract to that article, yep. that paper, if, you, if you're interested. But it's about the citizen science approach to the long-term monitoring of humpback whales. So we might go to Vanessa now. Yeah, she's, uh, she, uh, she was very interesting to speak to and she's done um, quite a number of interviews over the last uh, couple of weeks. About the National this. Science Week too. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm Dr. Vanessa Perotta and I'm a marine scientist and I research whales. For the last oh, many, many years, I have been working on the humpback whale specifically, whether it be working with citizen scientists to document the recovery of the humpback whale population of Cape Salander or using emerging technologies like drones to collect whale snot to learn more about whale health. Well, the use of drones to collect whale snot is essentially a non-invasive way to collect whale lung bacteria so it's a a novel way of deliberately flying drones through that spray that you can see as they come up and take a breath and we can collect those small small particles to learn more about how their health is tracking and compare their snot with other whale snot around the world well what it's telling us is it's looking at the inside so the internal health of a whale because um, in the past to be able to collect health information for a whale we relied on whales that were stranded in, ca- in which case their health was likely compromised, or whales that were deliberately killed, which is just unethical. So this is a non-invasive way where we can essentially fly a drone out to a whale's position 200 metres or more from a boat and collect that sample, bring it back to the lab and then look at their health and look for changes in bacteria in different populations and as the populations continue to grow. But what we've also done in a world first is actually collect viruses from whales using drones which is super cool and we've also applied this to collecting dolphin snot which is another world first what we've done already importantly is proven that we can use drones to access these animals in new and exciting ways we have contributed to a data knowledge uh, a data pool rather of uh, increasing our knowledge of the types of internal bacteria and viruses representative of what we would consider a relatively healthy population and then this in time can be compared to over for from strandings to look at what we would consider a healthy whale versus a sick whale. But also by consecutive sampling over many years, we can compare their health over time, which is really important because this is a recovering whale population. So the more we can look at them, the more we can better understand how changes in their population is going and necessarily um, might show us changes in the ocean because after all, these animals are swimming and breathing in the same, well, breathing in the same air and swimming in the same water as we swim in. Well, the main thing is we've stopped killing them. So I know that kind of sounds, oh, but we actually have stopped killing them. So they're recovering very well. 
and they can have a calf every two to three years, which means their recovery time or their sorry, their reproductive interval is quite short in comparison to other whales. I've been involved with Kernel Cape Solander at the Cape Solander Whale Migration Study, which it was formerly known as, for many years. And so I've done my master's research there with the team where I've been looking at trying to prevent whale entanglement and fishing gear and then naturally progressed into my PhD, which actually what it did was collect the information for 20 years' worth of sightings in which Wayne Reynolds and the team have collected. And this is of whale observations. Yeah, he's great. So what we've been able to do is essentially document their work, which is so fantastic in the scientific literature, which has essentially documented the recovery of the humpback whale population and compared to more systematic surveys, but it's showing that long-term citizen science projects like the Cape Solander Whale Migration Study is so important. And it's really important to note that Wayne Reynolds is representing, although he is part of ORCA, but he's actually representing New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Services. So that's a really great thing. And so 20-plus years of data published, we're very happy with that result. Well, I just want people to know that your actions on land can have implications for the ocean at sea. So we really kind of disconnected on the on land. We don't see the ocean every day unless you're lucky enough to live near the water. And I talk about this in my TEDx talk, which is talking about what whale snot can tell us about the ocean, actually. And so we need to think about how we think of connectivity in the ocean, whether it be from us to these large animals moving in the ocean dynamically. And really we need to think about how we influence the changes that are occurring in the ocean remembering that the ocean is actually our second lungs. They provide air so there's a massive carbon store. And it also serves as a, per, a regulating, providing a lot of food for us that we don't think of. And in this case, and especially at this, we have the ocean transporting a huge amount of over 80% of the world's goods by sea. So we're very connected to the ocean. We need to think about it a little bit more. We need to think about how we have our, our actions every day and how they manage impact on the ocean so making wise decisions like reusing a plastic bag or saying no to plastic bags in the first case don't release balloons into the air balls instead all those kind of things don't pour things down the drain these are all little actions we can take that will hopefully cumulatively make big impacts just be aware of it and just have that conversation with maybe your niece if you're roofing your, your child and and just make them aware of how beautiful the ocean is and how important it is for us. And so the thing is, I actually grew up on a farm outside of Canberra, so I, I always knew whales, even back then as a little girl, and so I was always drawing whales and dolphins. And so it was a natural progression to me, although I never thought I'd be working on whale snot. <laughs> so I did an undergraduate science degree in Canberra at the Australian National University for three years. Then I went on to do my Master's of Research at um, Macquarie University too plus another year in studying before that, and then my PhD, which was three and a little bit years. So I've been studying for a few years now, becoming a marine scientist, the easiest of things, but when you get there, you can be really proud of it at the end and you can go, you know, I made a difference, and that's the key thing. And she is certainly making a difference. She is an amazing marine scientist. I just uh, loved speaking with her yesterday, and there is so much more to that interview uh, that you'll be hearing later on in Sarah's podcast. <laughs> sure will. Uh, now we've just uh, we've got um, Kirsten here, who is a regular podcaster and comes on our show and talks to us all the time about what's going on in keeping it in the family. But she's got some amazing news for Shirepod. Come yes. on in. I got a message yesterday um, as a result of our smash pain and she said that she's getting so many extra followers from the Sutherland Shire as a result of uh, our podcast but also the social media as well. So thank you to everyone who's supporting these incredible family businesses and yes, let's keep it up. Yeah, listen, and that was, a, it was such a lovely surprise for me. I just, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's got um, real legs as well, like behind, behind the whole uh, ethos around her business and, and what she's trying to create. But that's exactly what we're trying to do in the community with this broadcast is, you know, let people know who's doing what and where, mm. which has been And it's great. great to hear that it's working. Yeah, well, it is working and we're in week nine and we've got three to go and we're really, really excited. But before that, we wanted to um, talk about... Nick. Nick. Because we've kind of had a lot of lot of people, a lot of special guests today, but I want to give a great shout-out to Nick, who just called me on the phone this morning saying, what's happening today? 
<laughs> you gonna interview me today? So Nick Boas, he's a long-time Kernel resident, and he recently received a mayoral minute in recognition of his valued and long-standing commitment to the Kernel community. And I first met him through my involvement with local cleanups, and he looks after the historical drive. So what that's about is he, you know, coordinates the cleanups of the streets of Kernel, the main drag coming in. Yep. And he deals with, you know, all the different stakeholders that look after that road. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's a long road. Yeah. And so if you want more information about that, you can contact with us. But I just thought a good morning to you, Nick. Oh. Thank you for all your hard work. So and we'll we have on a the next one. That's right. I mean, exactly. And because we've got a long list of, of all his achievements. Yeah. If you want the Mirror Minute, you know, you can ask for the KVN, our local village news that's in that. Oh. Or I can sit, yeah, I can send in. Can tell, you hook us up there? I can hook you up. I can hook you up. That's right. And, and this is what it's all about. So in this podcast, we love to find the connections. And again, uh, we've just had so many this week that it's been a little bit overwhelming even for me. And uh, today, we just wanted to sum up. This is how um, I've got, I'm going to post a photo of our mind map because it's an absolute <laughs> spider's web. Um, but this is pretty much how we can sum up. Um, can you go live for me? Oh, I sure can. Uh, <laughs> this is how we sum up today, which was incredible. Uh, basically, we had uh, So Chiron and Sarah and her husband, Brett, and she knows Emma Watts, who is the local resident in Kernel, and also knows Ruth and Jess, and uh, they are from, the, from Orca. Uh, we then and the wildlife emergency response. We then had Wayne Reynolds, who is also a whale watcher and a whale counter. Um, we've got Brett here doing um, audio, but he's also a diver and he takes great photos. We had Andrew Trevor Jones talking about the marine life down because he's a diver as well, and you you know all these people. Like <laughs> this is just incredible. And he's also um, we've also had uh, George Cotis mm-hmm. from the history. Uh, society. We had Wayne from the museum, the Australian Museum, talking about the whales. And then we had uh, Dr. Vanessa Perotta, who is the marine scientist as well, doing studies. And Jeremy from Stage Kings, who is a local resident as well as a business owner. And then we had uh, Dylan, who was our sports reporter. <laughs> and we had Angelina Martin and her mum, Kirsten, who have, have come in today to tell us about her HSC product as, as well as the great work that Champagne, um, Smash Champagne does. And finally, oh, we've got, <laughs> and finally, I've, and then we've got, we had Nick. So it feels like we've just got this huge, huge community. I feel um, like we've got it somewhere. I, I know. Is this sitting inside the, this little cafe that is also owned by Kim, who we all know, uh, who is the local resident here, as well as the cafe owner, and told us about the amazing history here. So, Carolyn, that's who we oh, forgot. And, I we, think. Had, and right. we had Carolyn come in as well. So you can see how it just keeps growing and growing, and this is what we do. So we probably could have done this over two days, <laughs> um, and we could probably have a morning show every day if we really thought about it. Um, but we're really grateful for all the people that support us. And one of those is Sophie Brown, who has just joined us online. Good because, morning. Yeah, and she's <laughs> taking some ama- – her project has been crazy um, and just doing such a great job out there in the community. And like Kirsten was saying to me earlier, it's the social media that's getting out there that's telling people about these businesses. It's people listening to the stories and connecting to them, isn't it? Like oh, it's absolutely. really – just knowing the backstory just gives you such a greater insight into what's going on. So um, we really just wanted to say – Thank you, Sarah. We we can't wait to see you back here and doing your own podcast. Um, and next week we have got another big show on. I wanted to tell you about that because Jay's going to be heading up the team with Nicole Dargi, and they're doing a special episode at the Tea House Gardens in Camilla in the Camilla Gardens um, in Caringbar about heart health. Now that is absolutely everything because it's Women's Health Month, and it's also September is Leptember, which is all about lipstick and raising awareness for women's health. And we've got a great guest lineup on heart health, heartbreak, and heartbeats. Wow. So <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So Nicole is right into this heart math thing. She's a yoga teacher, as we, we, we listened to her on Cafe Wise episode. Um, so that was, you know, she's just got some amazing insight, and she's going to be talking about her heartbreak as well as her heart health with Jay. 
So, and her heart health. So it's going to be a great episode and um, we would just want to say thank you to all the loyal listeners out there who started at 7am with us this morning and are still there. If not, um, we hope you're having a great morning here in the Kernel community. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful day and the weather report is sunny. That's all we're going to say for the whole weekend. Uh, we're literally just, yeah. Spring. It's, it's almost it's spring. It's nearly spring. spring Hang in, guys. We're nearly there. So share this with your friends. Um, you know, there's a whole heap of businesses in here. And again, I reckon we've pulled in about 30 businesses on this particular show. Can I mention just a couple more? Oh, oh please, bring just it in. <laughs> bring so it in. The, yeah, just ending up here. The Barefaced Bride. So I just want to give a shout oh, out to them just because... I stalked them that's on, right. on Insta. It's a beautiful shop and... You know, they do consignment, but they also do upcycling of wedding dresses. Yes. Designer wedding dresses. We've also got... Stacey Pierce Photography was another one I was stalking as well. She is really passionate about creating and capturing the memories of families. I just love her Instagram feed. And one of my other favourites too, we've got Deb. Deb Matson, who does sea glass. She picks up sea glass pieces from the beach and makes artwork Stop. and she also hairdresses as well I'm getting my hair cut next week finally <laughs> too many too I know many. we've got Talotza's Pizza Zumba by the Bay uh, they're all finalists as well in um, the local business awards but I did want to say Stacey Pierce actually travels to Hawaii so maybe we should be doing a podcast from Hawaii oh wow I'll be in that one yeah <laughs> I think we yeah. need a, a trip when that border opens and yeah. we're allowed to get out of Done. here uh, we, we grab Stace and we take her over and yeah. uh, say hey can you take photograph this podcast for us <laughs> Uh, and the local post office cafe too, they're, you know, essential to our local community. Yeah, that's a Silver office. Beach, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, so yes. we've got this beautiful esplanade. What do they call it? It's Well, Silver Beach Promenade, but oh. we've got different nades c- coming up. I think it's Silver Beach Esplanade. We need a Jess back because she's got the right words. I always say it wrong, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> now, Shypod is a local media production company creating the podcasts that build personal brands and bring the local personalities and business owners together to share their stories. We have loads of episodes to listen to. This is number nine. Uh, so don't forget to leave a comment and rate us on iTunes because that's the one that counts. All right, we've had a great morning, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us again. <laughs> what what a morning. Are we, are we exhausted? Oh, we're well, exhausted. that's what I said. I just looked at the list at and we've still got, you know, 10 other businesses. And that's what we wanted people to know, yeah. that not only Kernel, but every suburb, every suburb in Southern Shire has so many local businesses that we need to support. Yep. So give them a shout out. Tag yep. them on our pages. You know, if we didn't get to mention them today on the Kernel, tag them in our posts. Yeah. We're happy to talk about it, share them. Support your local community. Yeah. But any, you know, you don't have to drive very far to don't. find them. And you're actually saving petrol. So you're saving the planet just That's by right. shopping local. And <laughs> let people know, because you might know about it, but you probably don't realise yeah. the person next door to you didn't know that this was available in their own suburb. Yeah, it's fantastic. All right, we're going to head off. Thank you so much for hanging in there. We know. <laughs> we're very tired by now. Can we press stop? You've been listening to the Been There podcast. Oh. Uh-